Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Sport, sport, sport. It's all that we've been talking about. It's all that the national media has been talking about in the aftermath of the astonishing Kings and Queens of England World Cup. And Dominic, uh, we've World had several... I'm sure you said World Cup. <laughs> I'm s- do you know, I'm so excited <laughs> and I'm so shattered from the uh, the drama of it all yeah. that I can barely remember how to you're speak like trem- You're like a trembling wreck. <laughs> the adrenaline has coursed through your... I am a trembling wreck. <laughs> World Cup. Um, have you have you kind of come to terms with the drama of it all? Have you processed it? Um, well, so for those people who don't know... What the hell we, we're talking about? Yeah, we ran a World Cup of um, Kings and Queens of England on Twitter, and 84,000 people voted, or rather there were 84,000 votes, I think is probably slightly more accurate to say. And uh, in yes, the end... Yes, because some of us could have been voting under multiple identities, of yeah, course. Not that we were. Um, but um, at the end... Uh, Athelstan prevailed over Elizabeth I in the final by the absolute by the fairest margin. of margins. So fifty point five percent to forty nine point five. The lead changed mm. hands several times. the The game was extended overnight so people in America could vote. Um, and in, Athelstan, who was unseeded, prevailed. It was very exciting, and it's a fun way to get into the subject of talking about the kings and queens of England, which is something that I grew up. You know, so many people who got into history. They're sort of the structure, the scaffolding, if you like, were the yeah. stories of the kings and queens, weren't they? They're still the way in which actually we structure um, English history, the reign yeah. of so-and-so, the Elizabethan age, Tudors, Stuarts, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So we thought it was a fun way to sort of get into this subject. And what we're going to do – so we have done a podcast already on the winner, on the unexpected winner, who was Athelstan. And, Tom, what we thought we'd do t- today was to talk about the people who got knocked out in the in the first round, didn't we? Yes, because I think I think the the value of this from the point of view of um you know of of, of history rather the than academic massive, value of this <laughs> the, the of academic this value of this as opposed to the massive sports excitement which we in no way want to underplay um, is that uh, it it enables us to look at the kind of the institution of the monarchy yeah. and how it's evolved and changed and what I, I think also what people's reactions how they vote and and so on what that says about our attitude to history to monarchy yeah. and so on yeah. but it does also enable us to provide various kind of 
short portraits of uh, significant figures exactly. in, in English history. And I think that's what we should focus on today. So the tomorrow's episode, we'll, we'll, we'll look a bit more at the kind of the institution, the historiography, that kind of stuff. Um, but today we should, so, so there were, there were, we, we began with, um, Obviously, there'd been kind of knockout rounds, but 16 had made the, uh, the actual Well, that World was Cup. controversial in and of itself, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't was, it? it was, it uh, was. We had um, – so we didn't have Alfred the Great for reasons that we have discussed in great length in our preview podcast because England did not exist yeah. when Alfred the Great was king. He was king of Wessex only. That was your ground for excluding him, but also because you were worried he wouldn't win. And you love Alfred the Great so much. And it's clear now that he probably would have won. He probably would, yeah. Um, and, but we did include Oliver Cromwell – Lord Protector, because we said he he was a bit like a king and he filled a king-shaped hole, and also because we knew it would get people talking, which it did. So <laughs> yes, we had some absolutely outraged <laughs> listeners, a man called Capel Loft, one of our formerly a friend of the show, I think, now <laughs> perhaps a bit, of the show. <laughs> a bit more semi-detached. <laughs> he, um, he, he mounted his own rifle World Cup. Yes, he did, um, with lots of kind of Hanoverians. We didn't I, have any any of the Georges. Uh, we left out William the Third. We, we are going to do an episode later next year, just about the Georges, aren't we? Just for um, to show Loft. that we do to show show that we listen to our listeners. We're the People's uh, Podcast, aren't we? We are the People's Podcast. I will just say one thing, which is I note that his alternative World Cup was not featured in the Times, unlike, <laughs> unlike some World Cups I can mention. But if he's feeling cross and he's about to cancel us again, I will repeat: we are going to do a podcast about the Hanoverians. Anyway, let's. So basically. You know, we'd, we're forgetting about Edward II, Richard II, Henry VI, Edward VIII, all these duds who are out of the tournament. Although I did like the idea that somebody suggested that we should do one on the worst kings and queens. Of the England worst kings would be hilarious. So that'd be actually. fun, wouldn't it? Yeah, so that's it something would. perhaps to look forward to. Um, so we're going to crack on. So the, the kings that we're talking about today have done very well to get to this round, but they fell at the first sort of the first major hurdle. So we should just list the, the, the seeds. So yeah. it was Elizabeth I, Henry VIII, uh, Henry V, William I. Victoria, Edward III, Charles II, Elizabeth II. Yes. That, that was the order. And then the others were uh, Edward, the, Edward I, Henry II, Henry VII, Knut, Richard I, Cromwell, Athelstan, George V. And um, the opening rounds, the first match to be played was Elizabeth I, the top seed, against Edward I. And unsurprisingly, she absolutely hammered him. Absolutely hammered him. So the uh, question Edward here is, would which is would appropriate he... because, of course, his nickname is Hammer of the Scots. So the hammer got hammered. Was he going to lose no matter who he played in this round? And I think he probably was going to lose, wasn't he? Edward the first. He he was, and I think one of the one of the things, of course, that's interesting is that if if you grow up in uh, um, in England, reading English books, going to English schools, is that you get an English perspective. On your yeah. kings and queens, of course. Uh, and doing competition like this brings home very, very uh, forcibly that um, people uh, elsewhere may not entirely have quite the perspective that you do. And of course, Edward the First is famous as, as Hammer of the Scots. He's um, Long Shanks, so named because he's enormous size. The villain of uh, Braveheart. Yeah. But he's also the king, the English king that completed the, co- the English conquest of Wales, and so he's not regarded with huge enthusiasm in Wales either. <laughs> Uh, so I think the, the Scots and the Welsh were, were never going to rally behind him. But an undeniably impressive king, though, Tom. I mean, I know he crashed out, but by medieval standards. So he is in many ways the model of a medieval king, isn't he, Edward I? He comes in after his father, Henry III, who's been a bit of a sort of... A bit, bit useless. A bit of a dithery sort of jelly, yeah. um, fighting Simon de Montfort and the barons rising up against him. And Edward I, am I right in thinking that he really reasserts royal authority and a sort of... Yeah, a, well, he's huge. He looks a king. 
kind of massive. Uh, he's yeah. he's been on a crusade. Uh, he's very good at fighting, uh, and he's a very very able administrator. And yes, absolutely, in a way, he's the kind of the model. So you sent me some notes before we started. I, I, I'm not going to give away all our <laughs> methods to the to the listeners. But when I look under Edward the First on the notes that you sent me, I see the words genital mutilation. What's all that about? Well, so um, one of the themes of, of medieval history, actually, no, I mean, no, it's a theme right the way through, is the the awkward relationship that um, heirs to the throne tend to have with with their predecessors. Yeah. Um, and Edward initially uh, causes trouble for his dad. Um, because his dad is facing a, a baron's rebellion led by a guy called Simon de Montfort. Yeah. Um, and Edward initially sides with the rebellious barons, but he then changes sides, leads the royal forces, um, defeats Simon de Montfort at the Battle of Evesham, yeah. uh, which is an incredibly bloody battle, probably the bloodiest battle since Hastings. And uh, Simon de Montfort dies in this battle. And he gets uh, brute, he he, uh, he gets um, dismembered, mutilated, and his genitals get hacked off. All oh, right, well that's a nice, that's so, a nice touch, isn't it? So uh, that's the kind of the measure of of Edward. Edward doesn't do that personally, presumably. I think he probably orders it. The yeah. Lord Edward, as he's known. I mean, he's not a guy that you want to you, don't, you, don't mess you want with to get, get on the wrong side of. Um, he he then goes on uh, he goes on the crusade. Yep. Uh, he um, he comes back. He gets involved. Uh, heading back to England, he he gets involved in a massive tournament at Chalon, where various enemies try and gang up and murder him. But yeah. because he's because he's tremendously cool and very good at fighting, he he just wallops them. Right. And then he comes back to England, gets crowned, uh, and it's just it's chaos because uh, all the, loads of Scottish lords come, and uh, in the, the 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 party spirit, they let all their horses loose so that people can. You know, you can pick up a horse and you can have it. And then all the right. English lords do it. So it's it's uh, just London is full of horses galloping everywhere. And it's right. great fun. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very strange, that just seems very strange. And he gets, me, he gets crowned with the, with the crown of Edward the Confessor. So because of his, the name. His name. Right? Yes. His just name. a quick so question the, about his name. Why is he called Edward? Henry III is a huge fan of Edward the Confessor, who is founded Westminster Abbey. And Henry right. III rebuilds Westminster Abbey. So the Westminster okay. Abbey we have now is basically, it's Henry III's creation. Yeah. Um, but, but Edward, Edward the Confessor's tomb lies at the heart of it. Um, and so he names Edward after, after this Anglo-Saxon king. Isn't it a strange thing that Henry III, who is a bit of a drip, has this son who basically is, you know, Heracles, whose own son is then back to the drip again? Yeah. There's this kind of cycle there, isn't there? <laughs> there's a weird cycle. Isn't there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, uh, Edward is, uh, so, so one of the th- many, many things that, um, that Braveheart gets wrong. And I always remember John O'Farrell's witty comment on it, that the only way it could be more inaccurate was if it featured a, a plasticine dog and was called <laughs> William Wallace and Gromit. Um, <laughs> but one of the many ways he gets it wrong is that, um, Edward is shown as, as sleeping around and exercising Dora de Seigneur, but in fact, yeah. he was very, very, uh, luxurious. Very, like Nero, very fond according of to you. <laughs> like Nero, yes. <laughs> so he married Eleanor of Castile uh, and she died and he's so distraught that when her, her coffin is brought back, he builds Eleanor crosses the whole way. Yeah. Um, is that Charing Cross? Is Charing yes, Cross it is. one of those? Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it, that's a Victorian kind of rebuilding of it. I think there are three that that basically survive. Um, the, the, the original one at Charing Cross was destroyed by Cromwell. Um, so he obviously also um, conquers Wales. Conquers um, Wales. Yep, and there's there's more genital mutilation there because uh, he basically introduces hanging, drawing, and quartering. Uh, and the um, the brother of uh, Llewellyn at Griffith, who is the the last native, the Welsh Prince of Wales, 
Yeah. Um, he gets he gets captured, hung, drawn, quartered, and the uh, the drawing involves genital mutilation. Nice. Um, also, uh, he does have a bit of a blot on his discussion, doesn't he, about expelling the Jews? He expels the Jews. Yeah, he does that as well. So that's to do with the sort of anti-Semitic climate that's grown up around the Crusades, is it? Do you think that he's sort of drunk deeply of that? I think that helps. I think I think it's basically he he wants to take their money, right? Um, because oh, he's yeah. waging he's waging all these wars. Yeah. Um. And uh, so he's fighting the Welsh. He's fighting the Scots. So he needs the money. So basically, he grabs the money and chucks the Jews out. Uh, and then, of course, he continues to need money. And so one of the, the reasons why Edward I's reign is so important is that actually he, we mentioned Simon de Montfort, who in a way is kind of you know, traditionally cast as the father of parliaments. Edward I really is the father of parliaments because he, he there's one key parliament, the model parliament in which the commons as well as the lords come. And this essentially establishes the idea that parliaments should 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 involve both commons and and lords. Right. Uh, so very very influential um but um i mean not clearly not a very not a very pleasant man no but i mean well, very very powerful very, very domineering powerful. very effective yeah. uh, very influential but but not the kind of guy who's going to be elizabeth I. no but clearly a i mean despite as you say um uh unpleasantness in various areas a, a very no doubt to his contemporaries an incredibly impressive king you know a very formidable yes figure I think yeah. the kind of the model of what a king should be. Yeah, uh, and he dies. He dies at Burmarsh, which is uh, on the Solway Firth. And uh, anyone who's walked along Hadrian's Wall will remember the memorial to him, to the place where he died, that stands there. Very nice. So a very formidable fellow. Um, and the next king to bow out was also a very formidable medieval king. Arguably, I mean, some people would say, Twitter tournaments aside, one of the absolute twenty-four carat sort of. Top kings. Um, top definitive kings. Henry II, who ruled from 1154 to 1189. So he's the great... He lost to Elizabeth II, so all the, all the seconds, but, yeah. but amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, he is amazing, a great, but... a titanic. I mean, he's the, the founder, basically, of the Plantagenets, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So his, da- his dad, Geoffrey uh, of Anjou, um, had a sprig of, sprig of broom, which in Latin... Uh, planta genista. So some of our listeners will know of the... We'll have heard of the the civil war between Stephen and Matilda. So Matilda Christ was, and his saints slept. Exactly. The anarchy, isn't it? That's the anarchy, isn't yeah. it? And uh, the uh, the sort of deal that they do is that Stephen will be king and Matilda's son, um, Henry, will succeed. So Henry is ruler of – he's got um, these vast possessions in France, the kind of Angevin empire, but he's also got England. And he, again, is the absolute model, isn't he, Tom, of a formidable, reforming – powerful centralizing medieval king archbishop murdering <laughs> <laughs> well there is that yes there is that so i think well, you, know, you know why i'm keen on him uh the sacral um no he, uh, well, he wasn't he wasn't cricket. very sacral i mean he, he murdered an archbishop cricketing no, king uh, salisbury oh, so, so one of his favorite places was uh, a hunting lodge that he built into a palace called clarendon which stood just outside salisbury that's where he issues this this famous um the constitutions of clarendon isn't yes. That one of the sort of- yeah. So 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 he's a, he's a great he's a, a bit like um a bit like Edward. Uh, he's he's a great lawgiver, yeah. and he he's the kind of the origins of the English legal system, the common law, and all that kind of thing is is often attributed to him. And I'm not sufficiently qualified to say whether that's accurate or not. But one of the one of the ways in which um, Edward is trying to, uh, Henry is trying to impose his authority on England is by reining in 
the the degree to which uh, clerics are kind yeah. of immune from secular prosecution. And he issues these constitutions of Clarendon in 1164, which attempt to place limits on the authority of the clergy and the Pope and so on. Um, and this is where the bust up with Beckett happens. Thomas Beckett. He's best known for the fact that I've played him on stage at the Edinburgh Have you? Festival. Of yeah. course. Yes, of course. Teenage bishops and teenage bishops and trainers did not exactly convey the majesty of the medieval church, <laughs> said the Scotsman. <laughs> What, are, what does the Scotsman know? Edward I would have had no truck with the Scotsman. No, no, um, no. He'd have given so us Dominic, a great so, review. So, okay, well, so, so, so quickly just give us, tell us about Henry II and Thomas. <laughs> oh, God, I should never On the basis of you having played him. So as I recall, well, I played him as a very, very, it's it's, it's hard to sum it up in one podcast, actually, because it was such a sophisticated. Rich, nuance, <laughs> Rich and nuanced portrayal. Yeah. Uh, so Beckett is kind of his creature, isn't he? He's his... He's, um, he he's his great chancellor. pal. Then he becomes um, a cleric. And, and then the version that I was playing... Like Wolsey, was Cardinal the, Wolsey. Exactly. By the French playwright Jean-Anouy, Beckett then kind of con- basically uh, is sort of semi-born again or something, as I remember, and then is, is, is converted to the cause of the church. He falls exactly. out with the king, and then yeah. the king sends, famously sends these men, or doesn't send them, depending on what you believe. Well, something, so, so what happens before that is that, is that um, Beckett reluctantly agrees to the constitutions of Clarendon then goes away, then decides that he's done the wrong thing with his yes. conscience. Yes. Uh, Henry absolutely explodes. Beckett ends up going into exile where he cozies up to the French king, who is the great That's rival right. of Henry II in France. So that, that doesn't go down well. Beckett comes back to Canterbury. It's all been negotiated. He then, he, he kind of, what does he do? He, he, he kind of refuses to do something that Henry wants. And Henry explodes yeah. and says, words to the effect of who will rid me of this turbulent priest and four knights That's rush off. And, and they cut him down. What is it? I think the 29th of December. And they kill him by uh, slicing the top of his head off as though it were an egg. <laughs> well, as regular listeners will know, um, this extraordinary portrayal on the stage in Edinburgh almost got me the role as Paddington. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> because it was directed by the guy who went on to direct the Paddington films. And if only history had taken a better course. I know. I Tom know. would so- be doing this podcast with Ben Whishaw <laughs> and I would be playing a bear, Peruvian bear. <laughs> I, well, I, I, I think that alone, Henry II deserved to do better. Uh, <laughs> yes. Although so, possibly, possibly one, one reason why he didn't do better is that Henry II is the English king who uh, first intervenes in Ireland. Right, I don't think that costs. So he leads in. I, really I know, but 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 the, a, a, a kind of rumbling backdrop to the World Cup has been Irish voters, yeah, with Rumblings justifiable complaints against certain figures in English history. Well, basically, all Cromwell. Of them. Well, Cromwell obviously <laughs> features Elizabeth I too, of course. Um, yeah. But but Henry II. Actually, I, I didn't see anyone complain about Henry II. But he, 11, 11 seventy one. He he leads this invasion, and then he give he gives Ireland to John. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the worst thing. <laughs> that's the worst thing it. that's ever happened to Ireland, right? Being given to John to to be <laughs> terrible, terrible. Um, but Henry Henry gets paid back for that because his sons turn against him. Uh, he's got do. Eleanor of Aquitaine, his wife. Yeah, we should have mentioned her. Very he's impressive a, woman. Absolutely formidable. She is impressive, but she's also a bit of a baggage, isn't she? <laughs> Are we allowed to say that? Are you allowed I to don't say know. That? I, well, she kind of, I mean, she's kind of goes off with her, her wussy French king husband and decides that he's too much of a drip. So jumps ship, shacks yeah. up with Henry II, then turns against him, encourages all his sons to rebel against her. I mean, she's... I mean, she is impressive, but she's also, I mean, kind of a bit of a nightmare. 
Yeah. But anyway, uh, Henry II, I think no one studies him in schools. So that's uh, he, he's sort of an identical, impressive medieval king. So people didn't vote for him. And do you know what, what David Hume said about him? I do, because I've got it written down on the okay, notes. Do you want to read it out? Yeah. <laughs> the greatest <laughs> prince of his time for wisdom, virtue and abilities. But David yeah. Hume has been cancelled now, hasn't he? So, I mean, that doesn't count. David Hume is around. No, no, I think that still counts. So that's the end of Henry II. We are going far too slowly, Tom, because Tom's actually got to go on the radio, a real radio (laughs) program, in half an hour. So we have to um, rattle through them. Rachel Uh, Morley-esque. So Henry VII was the next series. Now, I'm a huge admirer of Henry VII. I think he was a very impressive king. Do you know who else? Yeah, I do. Okay, so so there are two. There are two key figures in English cultural life at the moment. One, One... Yeah. One is Jonathan Wilson. Yeah, and the other is George Osborne. The other is George um, Osborne. Both of them. Uh, Henry the so seventh, seventh admirers. Yes. Uh, and the reason for that obviously is that Henry the Seventh is famously careful with his money. Careful with his money. Yeah, I'm not gonna I mean Jonathan Wilson may take offence. But I think Jonathan Wilson is well known for being a very he's very canny. He's a canny, he's canny. operator. Yeah, canny operator, yeah. Um so uh yes, Henry the Seventh is basically an adventurer, isn't he? He's he's sort of left over from the Wars of the Roses. Um, through a very serious of complicated kind of family tree shenanigans, he's the last basically surviving Lancastrian claimant. Do you think is that fair? I mean, I know I'm massively simplifying. Yeah. Tom. So the Yorkists, Yorkists take over in the in the form of Edward the Fourth, then Edward the Fifth, his son, who then vanishes in the Tower, and Richard the Third takes over. Um, so the Lancastrians have basically been wiped out. Uh, but you do have Henry, and he is uh the grandson of Owen Tudor who married, weirdly, Catherine of France, who married Henry V. Yeah. So, I mean, that's quite, I mean, you know, that's he quite really, a come down, isn't it? He's really done the well Catherine for Catherine of France, yeah, yeah. really done well. Um, and both Owen and um, uh, Owen's son, so Henry VII's, future Henry VII's father, Edmund, they're both killed by Yorkists. Um, but the key figure for Henry, and the, basically the reason why he becomes the pretender, is that he his mother, Margaret Beaufort, is descended from Edward III via John of Gaunt. Yeah, and she had him when she was 13. I know. I know. It's kind of scary, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, so but, so she obviously builds him up, doesn't she? She pushes him forward. She promotes yep. him. She has all the contacts. Yeah. Um, so he flees to France in 1471. And he's kind of, he's not really a significant player at all, is he? I think he's, he's significant enough that um, the Yorkist kings are trying to get rid of him. And so he's constantly kind of having to move. He moves yeah. from Burgundy to France. But that's really because he's the last loose end. And- it's, it's not because he's he has any reputation as a tremendous yeah. fellow. He's just well, the last I, I, remaining. Until Richard III's usurpation. Yeah, exactly. exactly. A- and that is when it all starts to fall to pieces for the Yorkists. Yeah. Because people are genuinely shocked by what's happened. And so you have the Duke of Buckingham. He launches this initial revolt in association with Henry VII. But he, he launches it too soon. Buckingham gets murdered, get, gets caught, executed, and his ghost to this day haunts Debenhams in Salisbury. <laughs> I, I wondered why you were going down this Buckingham rabbit hole. <laughs> so you could mention a Debenhams in Salisbury. Um, <laughs> he haunts the, lo- the lingerie department, apparently. <laughs> Kelsey Breeze. Like right. Father Ted. Um, <laughs> so, so Henry VII invades. He leads this kind of ragtag band. They arrive at 1485. The Stanners change sides. Richard III is killed. We're going to do a podcast about the princes in the tower. Next year, we have it in the diary, so we won't get into too much detail. Henry VII, crown found in Hawthorne Bush, put on head. He is king. Marries Elizabeth of York. Yes, he does, to unite Lancaster and York. So the, the, red, the, red, the red and white rose are united in the Tudor rose. And then after this, this dreadful period of basically 70 years or, well, 
I mean, a long period of, of relative chaos, which had culminated in the Wars of the Roses. Henry VII really re- restores stability, and he cracks well, it down on the barons. it kind of rumbles on, though, doesn't it? It rumbles it on. It does, so they don't know the Wars of the Roses have ended no, in 1485. but they, they haven't entirely ended, because you, you get Lambert Simnel, who okay. pretends to be the Earl of Warwick, and who gets defeated yep. at the Battle of Stoke. Doesn't he uh, end up being a pastry cook or something? Yes, a, a spit. He, he turns the spits, <laughs> right. scullion, in the kitchens. And then Perkin Warbeck, who claims to be the younger of the princes in the tower, and he gets executed. So you've got them. But yes, basically... Oh, and he founds the um, the Yeoman of the Guard. Nice. In the tower. But he's very him. good with... He sorts out the royal finances, which have been such a problem. Uh, he, he is he's, he's disliked for his heavy taxes. So Morton's he Fork. A, yes. So basically, so, Morton's Fork is, if you look... Morton is one of his ministers. If you if you appear to be rich, then you obviously have lots of money and you should give more tax to the king. If you appear to be poor, then you're obviously hiding all your money. Yeah. <laughs> you should also give more tax to the so king. So you can see why George Osborne is such a fan. Um, but but he, yes, he's clever. He's... Um, Sinister, he, isn't he? Well, sin, but sin, but he's not he's not rapacious and he's not tyrannical. Oh, he is. I think he's not, rapacious. I don't think and he's I think, rapacious. I think he's I think just he's rapacious. I don't think. I think he's he's canny. Have you he's, read uh, Tom Penn's wonderful yes. book, Winter King? The Winter King, exactly. Yes, because that gives very him, good. I mean, makes him a sinister he's, figure. I think he makes him sinister. But I think he slightly overdoes the sinister aspect. I think for a lot of people, after the turmoil of the previous decades, Henry the Seventh provided welcome, very welcome stability. Okay, I, I, I accept that, but I also think that there is a kind of slightly sinister, mean quality to him that explains. Well, clearly the voters uh, agreed with you. Why he lost to Henry the Fifth. He's a much more glamour figure. Okay. So we have to do one more before the break, Tom. Oh, goodness. Okay, well, let's speed up. So William I against Knut. So interesting. Clash of um, 11th century invaders and conquerors of England there. Both of of Viking heritage. Uh, Knut won. It was a very, very tight uh, battle. That? Um, Knut only just lost. Yeah, Knut only just lost, didn't he? He, it was very, so a lot of people, you call him Knut, but most of us know him as Knut. Um, which is the ladybird. Well, Knut prompts the inevitable the inevitable joke. Is that why you're doing it? No, because he was Knut. Okay, Knut is, is, is a later Gallicism. So he's uh, Danish, isn't yes. he? Son yeah. of Svein Forkbeard. Svein um, Forkbeard, who is son of Harold Bluetooth, friend of the show. Yeah. The, the Viking king who got shot in the arse while having a dump. Yeah. Uh, Svein Forkbeard, terrifying king, had a beard. It was forked. Came yeah. over to England, conquered England. Um, but dies before ma- he can become king. No, he, he does become king. He forces out Ethelred the Unready. He yeah. flees abroad. Um, he's um, Sven Fortbeard is king of England for about five weeks, and he dies according to later tradition because um, uh, Saint Edmund appears. He's he's being rude about Saint Edmund. Saint Edmund tells him very politely, tells him to stop. Sven Fortbeard basically says, "Piss off," and so. Yeah. Um, uh, Ed- Edmund kills him. <laughs> it struck him on the head a blow from from the pain of which he shortly afterwards died. It says here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. So slapped on the head by a saint. By 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 a. So that's Spain dead. So Canute then takes over, and there's yeah. this Canute is a kind of great uh, hero of the Scaldic bards, um, and they hymn him when he's he's kind of very he's very young. He's very precocious, kind of raider. Only a boy, you ship batterer, when you launched your boat. No king was younger than you, and Canute fights with um Ethelred the Unready's son Edmund Ironside they basically it's a score draw they divide mm. England up um Edmund then uh, dies in in 1016 supposedly again a bit like um Harold Bluetooth uh, having a dump oh, that's he's supposedly spiked 
through right. through a hole in the privy spear up up into his ass. So that's him done. And um, Knut then takes over England. And to begin with, he's absolutely terrible. And he imposes this 100% tax rate. So that's very, takes uh, the entire tax revenue of England <laughs> that's and, very, and makes off with it. That's very Dennis Healy circa 1975. Yeah, but he only went to 98%, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's, well, 83%, 100%. I think, was the top income tax rate. Right. Um, um, 98% was on unearned income. But, um, but, but interestingly, so having been murderous and... Um, kind of just nicking everything can it then becomes a, a really good king um so there's a very good archbishop of uh of york called wolfstan as archbishops yep. of york tend to be um and he gets canute to um swear to uphold the laws of the anglo-saxon kings uh to be a good king Knut is is actually a very devout christian um he marries ethelred's widow emma uh the the daughter of the duke of normandy um so there's a bit of continuity there uh, tom please tell me about the waves I mean, everyone wants to know about the waves. I think we should focus on more important things, like he was a great patron of Wilton. <laughs> about three miles just, from where I grew up. So that's very important. Wiltshire chauvinism. <laughs> he, went, he went on pilgrimage to Rome in 27, got yeah. kind of lauded by the Pope, by the Emperor and everybody, uh, buried in Winchester. So a good, a, a good king by English standards. Right. And the, the waves- thing, of course, for which he is known is the story that um, he stands on the, on the beach and tries to stop the waves. And that's a story that originates in the 12th century with Henry of Huntingdon. Yep. And it's an illustration of the fact that not that Canute is kind of insanely... Uh, arrogant and thinks that he can stop the waves is exactly the opposite um he's showing because flatterers are saying to him uh you you know you're the great king you can do anything you like and and canute demonstrates by his failure to hold back the waves that only god can do well i think that's even if he didn't do it it's still laudable and um, (laughs) yes display of modesty that uh that never happened that we can all learn from and he um absolutely should have beaten william the conqueror in my view just a, a far better man. Now, we will have to take a break and we will return to do the, while the waves lap around the legs of Tom Holland's throne. We will um, have some advertising um, and, and promote things. And then we shall return and talk about the four remaining losers uh, for okay. this round. And we shall see you after the break. Goodbye. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. 
That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Now, regular listeners will be familiar with our splendid promotional efforts for Unheard. And how do you spell that, Dominic? I spell it U-N-H-E-R-D dot com. They're very keen on the spellings. They, they've, they've written that in blue for us to spell out. So it's the online magazine. You may remember it pushes back against herd mentality and is passionate about independent thinking. And it's been <laughs> sponsoring our podcast very kindly. And both of us have written for Unheard, haven't we, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. Which is why, very kindly, they're offering a special deal to uh, all you listeners out there, Rest is History listeners, three months free subscription, which can be cancelled at any time. It's normally one pound, um, yeah. I guess, is that a month, a week? A week, I guess. It's one pound a week, the producer is telling me. It's one pound a week. <laughs> We're so on top of our brief here. Um, but what I can tell you is that uh, if you want to claim it, you go to unheard.com forward slash rest. Um, and each week, uh, we will pull out some highlights from Unheard that uh, Rest is History listeners yes. might enjoy. Yes. Um, and this week, of course, Dominic, we've been talking kings and queens. We, we are have. talking kings and queens. We're in the middle of, of the episode. We're doing it right now. Um, and uh, there's a fabulous article written by um, Henry Oliver uh, about... Named after king- two kings, of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One uncrowned. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good. Uh, and it, that is about King Charles Third. Do you think he will be King Charles Third? Well, he's talking about changing his name, isn't he? Yeah, I think. What would maybe to Athelstan the Second? That would be good, wouldn't it? That would be <laughs> yeah, great, very, good. very satisfying. Uh, but um, and and um, it's 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 a kind of comparison about how he might operate and actually how he might be quite like George V. Well, as you will discover in this podcast, yes. that is a tremendous thing to be. <laughs> Wears so, his trousers correctly. <laughs> yes, uh, keen the on right stamps. shoes, stamps. Yes. So um, essentially, Charles III may be maybe okay as as king. Is your well, that sounds great? I'm looking forward to it already. Yeah, uh, and then also, uh, I think even even more uh, an even better article. I mean, it's, well, it's, this. It's, it's it's an absolutely wonderful article. You couldn't really read <laughs> so, anything better. It's by uh, the wonderful Costica uh, Bradatan, uh, who's written an essay, "Privileges in New Original Sin." Um, and do you know what he argues, Dominic? I, it sounds a terrible argument. I mean, I know <laughs> he that argues. Heard, yeah, they, <laughs> he argues, and I'm reading here <laughs> that today's progressives are as steeped in Christian ideas as both their capitalist and communist forebears. Wow! And who does he reference? What top authorities <laughs> does he reference in this article? I believe that he references a top historian who has written the history of Christianity and goes right. on about it in podcast. Yes, I Tom. Think. No, no lesser person than Tom Holland, friend of the rest is history. So that is why I have absolutely no hesitation in unreservedly recommending unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D. <laughs> Do spell it out. <laughs> yeah. Unheard.com slash rest. Go and join okay. the unheard. Well, they'll have a herd if too many people come. <laughs> um, they don't want that. But let's no. hope that a, a substantial minority sign up to unheard yes. so that we can carry on a promoting. A countercultural minority. Yeah. Okay. Uh, back to the kings and queens. Thanks a lot. Bye. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Uh, we are talking about the the losers in the first round of the World Cup of Kings and Queens, and we are on to the Lionheart himself, Richard I. Tom, were you surprised to see Richard the Lionheart bowing out so soon? Not really, because, um, you know, we talked about doing um, the worst Kings and Queens of England. I think Richard would be a candidate for that as well. I think, I mean, he's probably the only one who'd feature prominently in both. He's sort of wrong, but romantic, isn't he? In the, yeah, in he's, the a very, he's, he's, um, he's, he's a very, he's a very glamorous figure. Yeah. But he's he's also everyone knows he's terrible. So Stephen Runciman, the great historian of the of the Crusades, said that he was a bad son, a bad husband, a bad king, 
but a gallant and splendid soldier. So he's rule he's king for ten years, and of those ten years he spends ten months in England. And and the rest of it is basically crusades, isn't it? And and being captured and, and locked up in in uh, Austria or whatever it is. I, 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 he marries Berengaria of Navarre, who is um famously reputedly the only queen of england never to have set foot in england um <laughs> and uh, she features in i think is it, is it lion in winter and she has the immortal line <laughs> war what is it dominic it's your your favorite one war 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 that's all you care about dick plantagenet that's right exactly <laughs> and that's pretty much i mean that's pretty accurate basically yeah. fighting is all he does so he's born in england but he he spends very little time in england he's basically <laughs> in aquitaine with his mum yeah and he just fights. So he's he just fights against his, the crusades, he fights, isn't he? He fights. Well, he's, he's he fights against his dad. Yeah. So he's poor Henry the Second. I mean, Henry the Second basically dies of of despair and grief because Richard is such a nightmare. And then, no sooner has he become king than he's basically trying to flog London and raise <laughs> vast <laughs> amounts of money so he can fund a crusade. So he goes yeah. off on the Third Crusade, and he's a tremendous success on that. I mean, he doesn't capture Jerusalem. But he, he captures Acre, this, though, doesn't he? He captures Acre. He's he 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 gets in, he becomes admired by Saladin. Defeats Saladin. Great star. I mean, he's very brutal. He slaughters lots of prisoners. But yeah, he, he, he 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 blazes a path. He cuts a dash. But all the other European monarchs hate him, don't they? Don't they? The, the fellow from Australia, Leopold, and Philip of France. Well, yes, because they, they, they capture Acre. They capture yeah. Acre, and the, he's there with Philip of Philip II of France, Philip Augustus, and uh, Leopold of Austria, and the three of them put up their banners. And Philip, Philip and Richard are furious because Leopold of Austria isn't a king. So they hurl it down. Richard hurls it down into the mud. And then when he comes back from the crusade, of course, he gets captured. Yeah. And Leopold takes him prisoner. And so yeah. all, all Richard's subjects in France and England have to raise another massive amount of money to get him out. Yeah, that's poor behaviour. I mean... I wouldn't. I can't imagine the current queen behaving that way. <laughs> no, but this is, and it's it's all and and Philip II, who's his, you know, his compadre on the crusade, but is this great rival because Philip wants to take back the the Angevin Empire, um, and he's been working in cahoots with John, um, who everyone will remember from yeah. uh, from Walt Disney as the the evil cowardly lion. Um, Philip, when 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 Richard the Lionheart finally gets released, sends this message: "Look to yourself, the devil is loose." But what do people in England think of? I think they think he's kind of dashing, but a bit of a pain. But I think the the, the 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 long run, the evidence for what people in England think about him is all those stories that that the Robin Hood stories, yeah. where it's Richard the Lionheart turns up and he's the absolute hero and he saves the day. So Sean Connery in um, yes, exactly, exactly. Robin Hood, Sean Connery, bizarrely so playing an English king. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, so, so that's so Richard that, the Lionheart. So that so, suggests that people actually quite like him, but obviously not enough to. Um, oh, and he gets he 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 um he he founds this great castle, Chateau Gaillard, which kind of provides you know it's the cutting edge of castle technology, and then he's besieging a rather useless castle where he gets shot by a boy. That's right. Parents he dies been, in such a banal way. Yeah, he just gets shot through, and that Richard's last um, dying words is that he will he, he forgives the boy when it's brought before him. That's which nice is very touch. touching. Yeah. But do you know what then happens? The boy is hung, drawn, and quartered. He's flayed. He's flayed alive. Oh. <laughs> so. uh, isn't there a quick question before we move on? Isn't there a question about Richard's sexuality? Yes. Uh, so um, some historians say, uh, argue that he was gay. Um, others say that uh, he. It's this is anachronistic. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, how can they know. possibly know? I we, mean, we what know. are they basing this on? I suppose the fact that he didn't have a child with his with Berengaria, right? But I mean, that's but he did. Nothing, he, he did. He did 
he certainly fathered fathered certainly i think one child right okay so he didn't win anyway so that's enough of him now let's talk about our next king or was he a king certainly offered the crown um certainly filled the the boots of a king uh he is of course ollie oliver cromwell um who was my tip for the top but uh, the public sadly didn't agree um we did a podcast about him with paul lay so we did we did a podcast uh on his terms law protector yes um and of course the reason that we you know we said this in the preview but the reason that we wanted cromwell in and, and felt that he deserved to be in uh wasn't just to generate clicks um <laughs> it, it was because he filled a king-shaped gap in the constitution that's been yeah. left by the execution of charles the first um but yes yeah, so we we have actually covered the protectorate in another episode so if you want to know more about that um we did that with paul lay author of a, a fabulous book on uh cromwell's protectorate uh do suggest that so i think and i think that we're going to look i mean we're going to come back we to Cromwell, aren't we? we're will. doing an episode on the execution on the trial and execution of charles the first we are uh, i will in, simply in say i think cromwell was very hard done by in this tournament i think he was an extremely effective ruler of england uh he was feared abroad um he left the country on a sound footing um i just think he was a fine fellow i like i like oliver cromwell a lot i know that some listeners absolutely find that absolutely despicable but uh he obviously there are large numbers of people who feel very very passionately about him uh of whom people in ireland are are obviously absolutely at the top of that list but also royalists Uh, and a capital law for instance very cross about Cromwell's presence. Um, yeah. I would rather have a plain russeted captain that knows what he fights for and loves what he knows than that which you call a gentleman and is nothing else. I beseech you in the bowels of Christ, think it possible. You may be mistaken. See, I think I could have... I know I played Beckett, but I think Cromwell was the part <laughs> I was born to play. I would and love to go yet. around, you know, with ordering major generals to stamp out fun. I mean, that's been my thing. <laughs> well... There's a there's a vision. Um, <laughs> so anyway, he lost, didn't he? Who did he lose to? Uh, he lost to Charles II. Charles II, of course, in that derby. You know, kind of, yeah, classic. I mean, he was never going to... It was closer win, than was I he? thought, actually, because Charles II, who was, of course, wrong but romantic again, um, he was always going to uh, prevail. So, so Charles II... Uh, well, we I, would have thought, I, mean, I would have thought that he was the seed who was likely to drop out. That, I thought that Cromwell might beat him. Did you? Because I think Cromwell is such a Titanic figure. I mean, much more yeah. of a Titanic figure than, than Charles II. But obviously, there were Cromwell, all kinds from, of for my them. money, is the single most interesting person in English history, which is I, I think that's entirely big... true. No, I think that's entirely true. The most, the most complex, the most controversial, therefore, I think the most interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it doesn't make him the most admirable, but I think it makes him the most We should mention, actually, Ronald Hutton's absolutely. I mean, some listeners will know that Ronald Hutton came on to talk about the history of paganism. But his most recent book is called The Making of Oliver Cromwell. It's an absolutely fantastic. Um, uh, yes, the first of a three-part biography of him. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, really fabulous. Locating him in the landscape and in the kind of the imaginative world of the 17th century, just absolutely brilliant. But Cromwell, you'd have thought, I, I, I had thought that if a seed was going to drop out, it was going to be Charles II. But interestingly, it, the seed that dropped out was Victoria. And she was up against Athelstan, who ultimately, of course, won. Mm. Uh, Victoria, were you surprised Victoria lost? So Victoria was the number five no, seed. No, I suppose I wasn't. Well, I mean, was that you said beforehand that you thought that series that's on TV with Jenna Coleman playing the young Victoria, in which she's very kind of romantic, giddy figure would would endear her to the public but i think victoria suffers from two things one is the sort of she never has escaped the sort of post-death of prince albert yeah, the widow you know, of windsor the widow exactly the sort of we are not amused humorless 
that sort of image of her, which is, of course, a bit of a caricature, but has become absolutely, you know, it's embedded in our national imagination. And I think the other thing is the one thing that people would once always have held up and said, hurrah, hurrah for Victoria. Britain was at its zenith, um, the empire. She was empress of India. You know, she's a figurehead for great of, of greatness. That's now, you know, a lot of people don't sign up to that anymore. So in other words, she's lost a bit of her natural constituency. Yes, um, I think that's true. I, I think that's true. And also, of course, I mean, and this is something we'll probably talk about in tomorrow's episode, is that um, all the kings and law protectors that we've discussed so far were very powerful agents in their own right. Yeah. Um, we also have George the V and Elizabeth II, who were constitutional monarchs. Um, Victoria is the kind of intersection point because she uh, effectively, um, the power of the monarchy is, is ebbing away. But yes. she's still, you know, she's... She still tries, doesn't she? So there's a, yeah, she, a very famous moment in 1839 when Lord Melbourne, who was her first prime minister, who she adored, he resigned and his replacement, I think, was going to be Peel. And he wants to change the late, the bed, ladies of the bedchamber who always change when the, when the administration, when the ministry changes. Uh, but she won't have it. So Melbourne comes back in. Um, and then soldiers on for another two years till 1841. And that's one of the last moments when a monarch genuinely changes, you know, yeah. the course of kind of political history. Um, but it doesn't, you know, that's a last gasp against the, last the tide. Yeah, exactly. And I think certainly she hated Gladstone. Uh, another friend of the show loved Israeli, but loved Israeli. But you know, Gladstone keeps winning elections, so there's nothing she can do about it. And she has to put up with him, and she complains, "Oh, he speaks to me as though I'm a public meeting, and they have this terrible, frosty relationship." But she is powerless. Certainly, by the end of her reign, yeah. she's almost completely powerless. So, but but I think it's it's it, it scrambles the measures by which you're judging her. Yes. Um, so right. you know, Henry the Second or whoever, Cromwell even. These are actors and you're judging them by what they achieved in their own right. Elizabeth II, I mean, she she does well because she's a kind of model of what a constitutional monarch should be. But Victoria, more ambivalent, I think. Well, she, um, had, she survived a lot of attempts to assassinate her. Um, she survived a great upsurge of Republican feeling um, in, the, in the sort of middle to later part of her, of her reign. Um, the one thing she did do, though, Tom, was to almost in some ways invent the modern monarchy. Yeah. She invents the idea of the the idea. Well, she marries Albert, doesn't she? Yeah. And both of them have come from very unhappy, kind of broken backgrounds, and they create this model of domesticity. Exactly, that becomes hugely, hugely. She becomes a middle class queen. Exactly, as historians have said, you know, it's the blend of the domestic and the spectacular, the ordinary and the extraordinary, that becomes the sort of, as it were, the magic, the the, the formula, I guess, of the British monarchy. And she coins, she creates that formula, and is actually. When you look back, despite the fact that she was often controversial and indeed unpopular, she's very successful at a time when other monarchies are crumbling at, at, at yeah. putting that at the centre yeah. of British kind of political culture. And I think that, um, I mean, I think she, she's, she's a complex character, isn't she? She's full of contradictions. Yeah. She um, is. I mean, she's very passionate. Um, yes, kind of, very passionate. <laughs> uh, she's, she's, um, she's not. You know, this idea of her as as a sort of humorless, withdrawn um, yes, figure. I mean, rude. obviously, when she's grieving after Prince Albert, you can understand that. But for a lot, a lot of the time, she's actually a very impulsive character. Well, there are a lot of jokes made about that, aren't there? So, so she's very, very keen on on uh, Lord Melbourne. And so yes. people barrack her and shout out Lady Melbourne yeah, at her that's right. when they cross with her. And then there's all the stuff about after Albert's died and she's kind of grieving with, with uh, John, John Brown. Brown uh, and then later on, there's, an Indian, there's an Indian servant called the Munchie. Yes. So she has a series of crushes 
yeah. on people, I think it's probably fair to say. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, I think. I mean, I think she's she's obviously such an important figure, such a fascinating figure that we should do. Uh, we absolutely we should do should. an entire episode on. It's ridiculous to try and sum her up in now. Talking in five of minutes. fascinating figures. Yes. So the yeah, final match. The final my match. Favorite, one of my absolute so, favorite historical figures. So so the final match featured Henry the Eighth. Yeah. A man of gargantuan appetites who killed his wives, who <laughs> <laughs> basically did whatever he wanted to. Probably the most famous, not just English king, but most famous king <laughs> who's ever lived. And who was he up against, Dominic? He was up against another Titanic figure, <laughs> George V. I love George V, but it is fair to say that George V is possibly one of the most boring men who's ever walked the earth. Um, so well, George V was the second son. His older brother was called Albert Victor. He was the second son of Edward VII, so he's Victoria's grandson. He becomes king in 1910 because his brother had died a little bit earlier, leaving him as the heir. He has a tattoo of a dragon. Um, yeah. He's a very naval character, so he's got a tattoo. And that's why he – That's why. He, and we have we had – there was a wonderful tweet from Andrew Harrison um, who <laughs> listened to a podcast on George V, which failed to mention the key issues of trouser creases and the Kaiser's deck shoes, sadly <laughs> lacking in top punditry, will stick to the rest of history quite right. Too. Yeah, so he creases so, his trousers in the naval fashion, doesn't he? Yes. At the sides rather than yes, uh, Which you've mentioned several times. Yes. And uh, he does and wear the right deck shoes. Unlike, unlike his cousin. The Kaiser. The yeah. Kaiser. So he also looks identical to the Tsar of Russia. So there are all these sort of pictures of him and the Tsar smiling happily together. Little do they know what is coming. Um, but well, and notoriously, he, when the Russian Revolution happens and there's talk about um, giving sanctuary to uh, the Tsar and, yes. and, and the Tsarina, he says no because... Well, this because might the, rock, the, this might rock the foundations of the British monarchy. Yeah, because Lord Stamford and some of his advisors say it will it will stir up republicanism and sort of socialist agitation in Britain if you invite your relatives over. So he doesn't, and he feels guilty about that. Um, Tom Hollander played him on TV in a brilliant thing called I think The Lost Prince by Stephen Polyakov, and it's an amazingly moving scene when he finds out that the his relatives have all been murdered, um, which has always led me to think well of. George V. Now, Harold Nicholson said of him, uh, for 17 years before his accession, he did nothing at all but kill animals and stick in stamps. Is that, um, is that, is that fair? That is harsh? fair, actually. I was reading a thing <laughs> this morning about how he killed a thousand pheasants in a day and afterwards Goodness. wrote in his diary something, I, I feel we may have gone a little bit too far. <laughs> um, so he was a great, he was a great fan of hunting, country sports, countryman, uh, he, a great philatelist. So the, the world's greatest philatelist, some people might say, the yes. world's greatest stamp collector. Wasn't there, there was some courtier who said, I see, I've just read in the paper that some damn fool has paid £4,000 <laughs> for some damn fool's stamp. Yeah, and George right. said, well, the damn fool is me. Yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah, and he would he was a real stickler for the formalities. So people, if they, if they wore the wrong shoes at court, you would have been in terrible trouble because yes. if you wore the wrong shoes, well, you, the weren't Kaiser. Invited, you weren't invited. Well, so exactly. hence the First World War. Yeah. Yeah, you weren't invited. Deck shoe, deck shoe carnage. But the great thing about George V, actually, he's, um, again, in an incredibly unstable period. He is a beacon. He is a bulwark of stability. So this is why you and Tracy Borman. Yeah. Between you both nominated. I didn't. Yeah. I thought it's ridiculous. This is a point at which the, the monarchy could easily have been blown away. But also, Tom, he does a couple of things that are very important. Um, he urges conciliation and moderation during the Irish War of Independence in the early 1920s. So he is horrified by their fighting in Ireland. And that's why um, he, he he stops Lloyd George from calling a, a, a battle, or no, Churchill perhaps, um, a battleship, the Oliver Cromwell. Exactly, all these kind of things. So there's that. There is, uh, during the general strike, 
Again, he urges moderation. So he says to, he, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but he's said to have said to some Tory ministers or something about the striking miners and so on, try living on their wages before you judge them. Yeah. So if he did say that's very good for him. In 1931, he creates, in the, as the Great Depression is hitting, he basically creates a national government of some... Ramsay McDonald, the Labour He gets leader. on well with Labour, doesn't he? He does an exceedingly well with Labour. So when the first Labour government comes in, I mean, this that's is... That's always been of, the case. Labour leaders always seem to get on well with monarchs. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty true, actually. So he gets on exceedingly well with the first Labour government. Um, they have a guy called... Uh, what's his name? Jimmy? Jimmy? I can't remember what his name I can't remember. Anyway, um, he's a um, former railwayman, and he gets on absolutely tremendously with George V, and they tell dirty jokes to each other. <laughs> and have an absolute whale of a time. So he's very good at bringing Labour into the kind of, into the sort of political mainstream, if you like. Uh, what's it? Edward VIII, who was his son. So he had a dreadful son, obviously. Absolutely. He'd be a lead can- contender for the worst king. Worst king. Edward VIII, yeah, that feckless, old, feckless. Yeah. Um, Nazi. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I, I'm not going to make the, in- I'm not going to make the inevitable analogy with a current member of the royal family. But anyway, Edward VIII was that man. So he'd currently be in California. Uh, and he said of his father, uh, God, his beliefs were God, the invincibility of the Royal Navy, and the essential rightness of whatever was British. I mean, you'd oh. think that would be enough to get into the later rounds of the competition, wouldn't you, Tom? <laughs> What's I gone wrong? So. What's gone wrong? Oh, and also he changed the family name to Windsor, didn't he? He did, of course. He did, Prompting of course. the Kaiser's famous joke. And of course he dies. So there Can are... I just say the Kaiser's famous, famous joke? Go on then. Oh yeah, go on, go on. Say, yeah, I know yeah, what yeah. you're going to say. They go used to often see the Merry Wives of Saxe-Coburg. Very good. Very Hilarious. Good. Basically the Kaiser's only joke, I think, isn't it? Um, yes, probably. So he dies in, uh, he has, oh, well, so he has, he, a, he, he spent time recuperating in Bogner, hadn't he? Yeah. Well, before so that, hence, he's, so hence Bogner, Bogner Regis. Bogner Regis. So before that, in 1935, he had a tremendous jubilee, um, very successful. And he said, I can't understand it. After all, I'm only a very ordinary sort of fellow. I think no, that's, that's, that's so a nice Sandbrook. thing to say. That's, that's so Sandbrook. <laughs> he'd, done the, he'd done the first Royal Broadcast as well, didn't he? So. See, that's what I say about the success of the rest is history. So. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so he changed the name to Windsor. He, yeah. he established the, um, uh, the the Royal Broadcast. He established the idea of uh, being incredible, that being boring is a good thing. Yeah, exactly. So as he established the template for the 20th And then he dies in 1936, uh, or he's, he's, he's dying, and his doctor famously administers a fatal dose, basically, to kill him off. And to get him in the Times, right? So that it will be reported in the Times rather than the the more (laughs) down-market evening papers. Um, And so there are three different accounts of what he said. One 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 is by Bogner. One is is that somebody said to him, you'll be right as rain soon, you can go back to Bogner Regis. And he said, bugger Bogner. Uh, The official thing that he was meant to have said was, how is the empire? (laughs) Somebody (laughs) said, it's great. And he he said, he smiled and died. Yeah, but apparently one of the doctors wrote in his diary that actually the last thing he said was a nurse gave him a sedative or something, and he just said, "God damn you!" <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that sounds more more probable. It definitely sounds more probable. Yes, so he bowed out. I think very unfairly. Um, <laughs> against Henry I, the Eighth. I mean, he against, was, well, I wanted Henry he was the Eighth. Never going to beat Henry the Eighth, yeah, of course. So they were the um, they were the first fallers. Now Tom Holland has to go off right now. Um, I know. To talk to the nation about to, to address the nation about Athelstan, the winner um, on yeah. the on the BBC. So we will bring this podcast to a close. But coming up, yes, we've got the we've got, we've got the, uh, the quarterfinals. So we've got Elizabeth II against Henry V. We've got William I against Henry VIII. We've got Elizabeth I against Charles II. We've got Athelstan against Edward III. Uh, so we've got um, we've got lots and lots more to talk about, and we'll talk about the changing nature of kingship. 
as well. Yeah. That's very exciting. Yeah. So we'll be doing all that tomorrow. Um, stay tuned. Um, and we will see you then. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.